Father God, we are here this morning because we, we know what we need, and what we need is you. Jesus, um, you know, when we hear stories of people going through life's ups and downs and even life's hardest moments, that's when the name of Jesus, <laughs> we just understand there's no other name. No other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He is life, and he gives life to the full. But we know we have an enemy, Lord, and he's come to steal, kill, and destroy. But you came to undo his works, to destroy the works of the enemy. You are life. And it is our desire, Father, as we've gathered on this Lord's Day to worship you in spirit and in truth, to take in what you have breathed out, which is your holy word. It is alive, it's powerful, it's active, and may it do a work in all of our hearts. Write your word on my heart, Lord. In fact, my prayer is that your word would read me, instead of me reading it, that it would read my life and speak, that you would speak, shape our faith, increase our faith, grow us in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we might go out and live a life for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe, but... Is that where your faith is? I think a lot of people operate that way. And as we uh, watch the gospel accounts, we know that Jesus has been doing a faith-stretching work in the life of the apostles. We saw in Mark 6.52 that their hearts remained hard. But we saw Peter's great confession at Caesarea Philippi. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But I'm not sure they had put it all together. And right after that, Jesus began to show them. He was telling them, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be mocked, spit upon, mistreated, crucified. I'm going to die and rise on the third day. Very great detail. That's a prophecy. If that didn't happen, Jesus cannot be God. He cannot be the Messiah. He predicted his own death and resurrection. If the resurrection is just simply a metaphor, if it didn't really happen, then Jesus did not tell the truth, folks. So when you watch the History Channel and these people try to tell you that that's all it is, that resurrection is just a metaphor, thumbs down. <laughs> Doesn't work. And so um, they went up on the Holy Mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration. Pastor Chris spoke on that a couple of weeks ago, and that mountain with Peter, James, and John was amazing. That mountain said a few things. It may have been Mount Hermon up in the north by Caesarea Philippi, that mountain said that Jesus is God, that he is deity. He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, remember? And up on the mountain, it showed his deity. It also showed that there's life after death because up on that mountain appeared who? Moses and Elijah. The Mount of Transfiguration shows that Jesus is God. It's not the only evidence we have that Jesus is God, but it, it affirms his deity it affirms that there's life after death. It affirms it's a foretaste of the coming kingdom. And it's also kind of a, a look at the incarnation. The one who is glorious, the one who had the glory with his father before the world was, came down. And he cloaked that glory in human flesh. And up on the mountain, they got a little uh, preview of coming attractions. Or maybe you could say 
They got a really an understanding of what Jesus had been doing the whole time, which Philippians 2 talks about. He had been veiling his glory in humanity. That's the mystery of the incarnation. And, you know, some scholars have put it this way. He kind of just gave them a glimpse of who he really is. The confession was awesome at Caesarea Philippi, but now Jesus did one of these moments. And it's like, wow. Do you know who you're really dealing with? And Moses, representing the law, and Elijah, representing the prophets, both fade into the background, and the one that's left standing there is Jesus, because the whole Bible, the law and the prophets, are about him. Every page, Moses and Elijah fade into the background. And some scholars believe that Jesus is still radiating with some of the glory. We don't know for sure. But the reaction of the people when he comes down the mountain may imply, at least, that he's still radiating kind of like Moses did when he met with God. And so they come down. Look at uh, Mark 9, verse 9. And they were coming down from the mountain. Mark 9, 9, the Mount of Transfiguration. According to Luke 9.37, and we'll bounce around uh, back and forth to the Gospel of Luke, which is the, just the next one to the right. According to Luke 9.37, it was the next day that they came down from the mountain. He gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen, keyword, until the Son of Man should rise from the dead. Now, I don't know how you keep quiet about all this kind of stuff. But anyway, he said, just just Wait. And they seized upon that statement, discussing with one another. Oh, excuse me. So uh, it says, uh, anyone, until the Son of Man should rise from the dead, end of 9. And verse 10 says, they seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead might mean. And I wrote in my margin, duh. (laughs) I mean, I'm sorry, but what rising from the dead might mean? What do you mean? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Do you need me to repeat it? The Son of Man's going to rise from the dead. But in the Jewish mind, we have to remember, they couldn't conceive of a dying and rising Messiah. They thought that Jesus was just going to take the throne in their lifetime, that he was going to conquer Rome. They couldn't conceive that it would be a couple thousand years since a potential millennial kingdom or maybe more. We don't know. And so this is what they wondered about. They wondered, is he talking about a general resurrection? Is there some other meaning that they couldn't conceive that he was going to die? Peter said, this is never going to happen to you, Lord. Never. And he got rebuked for that. And so the Peter and the sons of thunder were probably skipping down the mountain, wouldn't you be? Wouldn't you be having all kinds of theological discussion? He doesn't want us to tell anybody, but we can talk about it. Moses. Elijah. Wow. How many of you How many of you have been on a retreat before? Raise up your hand. Wow, pretty cool. So you go up on a retreat and you usually go up on a mountain, right? And you meet God up there and maybe in a fresh deep way and you're like, "Wow, this is awesome." And what did they experience up on the mountain? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And they're probably skipping down the mountain saying, Moses, Elijah, Jesus glorified the theology, the glory. Everybody should listen to Jesus. Don't you think so, James? Oh, yes, I think so, John. Everybody should listen to... Isn't that how we come home from retreats? Everybody should listen to Jesus. (laughs) We're radiating. Then we come down the mountain. 
and people down in the valley. <laughs> Meanwhile, down in the valley, they're not always on the same page. Have you noticed? You come back from this momentous spiritual experience and, man, not everybody's on the same page. The experience probably sparked all kinds of theological discussion as they bounded down the mountain. We can almost picture Jesus smiling as he listened into their discussion. They had just seen Moses, Elijah, but something puzzled them. Because when, in seeing Elijah, they had some theological questions about the timing of things. It's going to spark a question. Because the rabbi said, Elijah must come first. And that's not just what the rabbi said. Malachi 4, the end of the Old Testament, known in Italian as the book of Malachi. That's the proper way to say Malachi. Just so you know, just take a mental note. The end of the book says, I will send Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord, before it comes. And so they thought, well, Jesus is here, and if he's the Messiah, the day of the Lord has come, because they couldn't conceive that they were separated by thousands of years. So they were probably talking among themselves and asking about Elijah. And they said to him, look at verse 11, Mark 9, why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does first come and restore all things. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you, 13, that Elijah has indeed come. And they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is, it is written of him. And when they came back to the disciples, the other nine, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing or disputing with them. Now, let's hold that thought with the question about Elijah and turn back to Matthew 17. Matthew 17. So you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the Gospels. That's the order, Matthew 17. This account, by the way, is uh, treated in Luke and Matthew. So let's pick up Matthew's account. Look at Matthew 17, verse 9. This is a question that comes up among people. As Matthew 17, 9, they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. His disciples, Matthew 17, 10, asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming. Bible students, if you'd like to mark your Bible, mark Elijah is coming. You might want to write in your margin there, Malachi 4, 5. And will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came. That's the other part you want to mark. He is coming, verse 11, but he already came, verse 12. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Keep reading. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Back to Mark. If you're confused, let me explain. John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. He was an Elijah-type figure. He came as a New Testament Elijah to announce the first coming of Jesus Christ. He was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. And he said, He's coming. He's coming. And then he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, there he is, who what? takes away the sin of the world. 
In an Elijah-type ministry, very much like Elijah in what he did, John was a type of Elijah, and he came and he announced the first coming. And what did the religious leadership, or in this case Herod, do to John? Killed him. They killed the messenger. They killed the one that would announce the coming. And in this sense, Elijah already came, and in the second coming, so John is the fulfillment of an Elijah-type ministry in the first coming. In the second coming, Elijah is coming. And he will restore all things. And we can see that from Malachi 4, 5, and 6. And we can also see that from Revelation 11. Pastor Chris touched on this, that Elijah is probably one of the two witnesses announcing the day of the Lord, which will be coming. Um, so, there you go. They came down the mountain to an argument, though. There was a dispute happening. If you turn back to Mark chapter 9, at the bottom of the mountain, and that's kind of the way, this is one of our faith challenges, things that challenge our faith, is we come down sometimes from high spiritual experiences to arguments or disputes. Life in the real world, it's kind of like the mountain was a picture of heaven and the coming kingdom, and the valley or the argument was a picture of how life is now. There's glory coming, folks. We're going to meet Moses, Elijah, and many others. We're going to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. Amen? There is life after death. But life down here, not always pretty. Stupid arguments, silly divisions occur at the bottom of the mountain. And here, I would just say to you, if you're taking notes, that the day after retreats, sometimes the weeks after a retreat and sometimes months after a retreat can be a letdown. <laughs> Not everybody's on the same page. Now we find out what's going on. The, the argument between the scribes and the nine that were left at the bottom of the mountain, remember there's 12 disciples, nine did not go up on the mountain. Only Peter, James, and John were up there. The other nine were left to deal with what they were dealing with, and they were doing ministry, of course, but they had run into a difficult case, and here was the case. There was a father with a demon-possessed boy. We don't know his age for sure, but he seems to be a younger boy. And the disciples could not cast the demon out of the boy. They had used the same formulas, apparently, that they had used in the past, and they had had success. They had come bounding back to Jesus earlier in the Gospels and said, we have power and authority in your name. But all of a sudden, they couldn't deal with this particular case. And so the scribes, always watching, always wanting to be negative, always wanting to criticize, what did they do? They said, oh, apparently you guys don't have all the power you think you do. And you represent your master. One writer says, well, now, if you can't do it, the messenger is as the man himself. You are phonies, and so is your master. You can't deal with this case of demonic possession. And the scribes were loving it. Do you have some people in your life who just love to watch you fail? Faith challenges come when sometimes we fail. Sometimes we tell people about the power of God and then we fall on our face. And some of our critics love to mock us. In fact, you know, the secular papers and the, the secular media won't say much about Christianity until a Christian falls on their face. That's when they want to talk about it. 
They won't talk about a pastor who's by somebody in the hospital for days as they're dealing with their mortality. They won't talk about midnight phone calls or prayer meetings or giving to the poor or helping out AIDS victims or running uh, somewhere, a relief agency, Christian base to help victims of a hurricane or an earthquake or you name it. Oh, they won't highlight that. But if a pastor has a moral failure or somebody who's a Christian blows it, oh, they're right on top of that. And so when the entire crowd, look at 15, Mark 9, immediately when the entire crowd saw him, saw Jesus, they were greatly amazed. They were astonished is the language here in Greek. And they began running up to greet him, which means they saluted him or welcomed him joyfully. The question that scholars ask is, why are they astonished? Why are they, it could just be the presence of Jesus. It just could be that he's here. This is cool. We've been waiting. Or it could be that he was radiating some of the glory. And so their people moved uh, their attention from the situation and the debate to Jesus. And that's what we need to do in life. We're getting all wrapped up in the minutia of life. Please hear me. When we're getting all wrapped up in the minutiae and arguments of life, we need to turn our focus back to Jesus. Are you dry right now? Turn your attention back to your Bible. You know, when we're always in debates, it can be just exhausting. We need to keep our focus on Jesus. And so Jesus asked them, this could be the apostles or the New King James says he asked the scribes, verse 16, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him and said, Teacher, this is the dad. I brought you my son. That is, I brought him to your disciples. Possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. NIV says he is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Turn your Bibles to Luke's parallel account in Luke 9. Here's the terrible plight. The father has spoken. There's a great crowd and he says, Jesus, my boy is in terrible trouble. Luke 9, look at verse 38, the parallel account. Luke 9, 38. Behold, a man from the multitude shouted, Luke 9, 38, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he, we find out now, is my only boy. Look at my son. The word look at is used in Mary's Magnificat in the Gospel of Luke to look with mercy, Lord. Please focus your attention over here. He felt helpless. He was watching an unseen force destroy his boy. We're going to find out in a dialogue with Jesus that this has been happening for quite some time. And the father feels helpless. And he's a man from the multitude. He feels like uh, this is, these are things that challenge our faith. faith. One hand in a thousand. A man from the multitude. A woman from the multitude. Jesus, do you know about my problems? You know, sometimes you ever just sit on the freeway and go, Lord, there are so many people. <laughs> so many. Southern California, you especially say this. Why are all these people trying to cram into this one location? I don't know. <laughs> We're part of it, though. Right? And you look at you know, face after face in automobiles or you might see a huge crowd somewhere and you're like, Lord, my one hand, when my hand goes up in the multitude, do you really hear me? Do you care about me? Lord, I believe, but there's a lot of people. How do you keep track of it all? 
I'm dealing with just three or four and they're driving me crazy. Can I get a witness? <laughs> I believe, but I feel helpless. Isaiah 25, 4 says, God, you are a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy. Isaiah 25, 4, in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. There's a sense of urgency. The devil had robbed his son of everything, including his speech. Look at verse 39 of Luke 9. Behold, the spirit, a spirit seizes him. This is all this boy can do. He suddenly screams. It throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth. And as it mauls him, it scarcely leaves him. Help. This thing, whatever this thing is, is destroying my boy. And I, I had a glimmer of hope because these nine that represent you, I heard you're a healer. And so I asked them, and disappointment has rushed into my soul because not even they that represent you could deliver him. Now what? Things that challenge your faith. I believe, but not even Jesus' disciples could deal with this spiritual force. Now what do I do? This thing won't even leave him alone. The only sound that my boy, my pride and joy, can make is to scream. That's all he's got. He's deaf. He's mute. Satan loves to mar the image of God. He tries to get people convinced that you're not made in the Imago Dei. He tries to get you convinced that there is no God. Nobody cares about you. In fact, he loves to whisper to people, you may as well die. Look at all your problems. What's God doing about your problems? I mean, imagine being in this father's sandals. He's exhausted everything. There are people all over the planet that are hopeless. They feel helpless. They don't know what to do. They start to doubt their faith. Kim Meter was uh, being in, uh, interviewed by Frank Sontag. She runs a ranch called uh, Crystal Peak um, Youth Ranch. And they take horses that have been abused, and they take abused children and bring them up to this horse ranch. And as the children uh, minister to the horses that have been, become skittish and been mistreated, it ministers to the children as well. And Kim Meter began to share her story, and she said that when she was a little girl, she, they threw everybody in the car, her and her two siblings, and they drove off to Grandma's house, and nobody was talking, and she had a terrible sinking feeling. And I think she was maybe nine or ten years old. And she said that, when she got to the house, everybody was crying and everybody was distraught. And a woman that she barely knew pulled her to the side and said, I'm so sorry to tell you this as the woman was sobbing, but your father just murdered your mother. And she said she didn't know what to do. I think, as I recall the story, a friend of the family had brought her to church a couple times, but she was devastated. And she was like, no, no, that can't have happened. No, my father loves my mother in reality. And she went running off into a field and put her face in the dirt. And she said the only thing that she knew to do was cry out the name of Jesus. She said, I didn't even really know who Jesus was. 
He said, I, I kind of had an idea that he was the man that died on the cross, but that's about all I knew. But something deep inside me said, cry out to Jesus. And she did. Now she's doing phenomenal ministry, helping people get through their own wounds and brokenness. And you know, when we talk about things that challenge our faith, there's going to be seasons when things are inexplicable. There's no great uh, reason that someone can give you. And we get in trouble sometimes when we try to solve people's problems in the moment by quoting a Bible verse. And I'm not saying that there's not power in the word, but I'd be very careful when you quote Bible verses to people. Sometimes we just need to listen to people. Sometimes we just need to say to people, I'm here and I'm just going to pray for you. And sometimes people who are going through difficulty don't even want to hear that you're praying for them. Sometimes they just want to hear that your arm is there. We have to be wise. This boy is living in a silent, shattered existence. The NIV says of him that literally this spirit is crushing him together. The devil's plan is to rob you of everything. He sells things in pretty packages. Go back to Mark chapter 9. He puts glitz and glamour on them. The first high is very exciting. And then that thing becomes a prison cell. It's very tricky in the way he works. So you must be on the alert because the devil goes about like a roaring lion seeking someone to what? Devour. You've got to be aware, folks, of what's going on in this world. And so the father continues from Mark's account, Mark 9.18. He says, whenever it seizes him, Mark 9.18, it dashes him to the ground. He foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth. He's in a living hell, I think is the way to put it. He stiffens out. He becomes rigid, New King James. And I told or I asked your disciples to cast it out. And they could not, Matthew's account said, they could not cure him. They couldn't do it. How many times did they try? I don't know. But it just ended up that they decided to say, this is, I don't know, we can't, we don't have any answers here. We can't do it. The formulas that we've been using in the past are not working. And I don't know if the disciples walked away, but can you imagine being that dad? Can you give me a referral? What do I do now? How, how does this stop? Can you imagine living his life? You know, we think we have problems. And so here is Jesus. The solution is right in front of the Father, as he will find, but first Jesus expresses what he sees. Jesus answered them, the whole crowd is being addressed, 19, and says, Oh, unbelieving generation. If you have a New King James, Jesus says, Oh, faithless generation. One writer pointed out that the word oh is rarely used in addressing others directly. And Jesus is showing emotion, but emotion in the sense of disappointment. Now, you wouldn't think at this point that Jesus would be shocked by anything, and the longer I live, the less I'm shocked by most things. And just when I think everything that could shock me has shocked me, then I get shocked again. <laughs> Amen? But Jesus is, like, exasperated. I think this, is inclu this includes his nine disciples. I think it includes the scribes who were just waiting to jump on their failure. I think it's the unbelieving crowd. I think it's the dad. I think it's everybody. And he says, oh, faithless generation. I asked myself this week, let me ask you, if Jesus addressed our generation today, what would he say? 
You know, in Luke 18, Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And look, as I preach to you, I'm asking myself, what does it take for me to say, I believe, but? How much do I have to see to truly believe, to walk in faith? I think we're always asking that question. The word generation indicates Jesus' exasperation with everybody there. Frederick, Frederick Godet, he's a French commentator, suggested that Jesus' exasperated response may have been partially due to his wonderful night of prayer and communion on the Mount of Transfiguration. He says he feels himself a stranger in the midst of unbelief. The holy enjoyment of the night has made, as it were, him homesick, close quote. You know, you, you're up on this mount, you're glorified before your uh, disciples, the three inner circle, you come down the mountain and all there is is unbelief. You go into your workplace, you come away from a Sunday message, you feel re-energized until you get to work. <laughs> you're like, what in the world is happening here? But it's not just at work, and it's not just at secular colleges. Sometimes it's our own believing families. Sometimes we run into a situation, and people that we believe have been walking with the Lord for a long time are ready to drop their faith like nothing. Ready to abandon their commitment to Christ. A little bit of challenge. That's it. Christian thing's not working for me. You see, the problem with the disciples is one key thing that was missing, and we find it out in the account, and I think many of you are familiar with it. Get this. They didn't pray. Jesus said this kind only comes out by prayer, and guess what? They didn't pray. Can you imagine going into a a situation where you're dealing with an unseen force that has more power and it's scarier than anything you've ever dealt with and you go in there and you don't, wait a minute, you don't pray? But how many things have you and I done where we've become so used to formulas and things that work for us that we don't pray about it anymore? You know, prayer is our central communion with heaven. When we pray, that's when heaven is enlisted. When we pray, that's when evil is resisted. But if we don't pray, no power. And I'll tell you, it's a mystery and it's a discipline because to get on your knees and pray to God who is spirit is not an easy thing. It takes faith to pray. Faith is an act of obedience. Uh, Prayer is an act of obedience. Prayer is an admission of my dependency. Anne Graham Lotz, daughter of Ruth and Billy Graham, tells about her mother. She says, What my mother taught me and that which I seek to pass on to her grandchildren is that God is enough, period. Growing up, I had a bedroom directly over hers. No matter what time I went to bed at night, I could see the light from her room reflected in the trees outside. Were I to slip downstairs, I would find her on her knees beside her bed. There was no use waiting for her to rise. She would be there in prayer for hours at a time. No matter what time I arose in the morning, I would see the light from her room. When I arrived downstairs, she'd be at her desk reading one of 14 different Bible translations that she had. She says she knew God well. Is God enough? 
You know, we get into all of our formulas and our bullet point lists about what we should do. Look, we've got to start with the one who can actually do something about our situation. Is your marriage in trouble? Your faith in trouble? Have you, you know, hit a, hit a crossroads in your life? Just go back to the one who can deal with all those things. Jesus called this a faithless generation. And then he said, how long shall I be with you? Look at verse 19. I love Jesus. This, this gives me reason to talk sometimes the way I talk. How long shall I put up with you? <laughs> and then Jesus says, bring him to me. I want a video room in heaven because I want to see the way Jesus said things. I have an idea of how he said things, but it's like, you know, to paraphrase, Jesus had really moments like, really? <laughs> Didn't that give you hope? Bring the kid to me. Get out of the way, you sissies. <laughs> I mean, that's it. Praise God. I mean, it's awesome. It's a crooked generation. And they brought the boy to him, verse 20, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion and falling to the ground, he began rolling about or rolling around and foaming at the mouth. The spirit inside the boy went, uh-oh. <laughs> There's the one that's powerful. See, the demons knew who he was. This is a last-ditch effort. I'm going to get him on the ground again. Get the foaming machine going. Sorry, I don't mean to be glib. This boy's living like an animal. I read a commentary this week that shared the real-life story of Thomas Sullivan, recorded in the Chicago Tribune. The studious boy, within a matter of weeks, became involved in the occult and Satan worship. He stabbed his own mother, set fire to the house hoping to kill his father and brother, then cut his own throat and wrists with his Boy Scout knife and died outside in the bloody snow. Within a matter of weeks of opening the door to satanic darkness. You don't believe it's real? I don't know what page of the Chicago Tribune that story was on, but that's the kind of stuff we don't want to talk about. A Boy Scout shattered and so jesus in verse 21 asked the father how long has this been happening to him and he said from childhood i don't, I don't know that if this is jesus asking for clarification i think this is a divine appointment like so many we've read about in the gospels i think jesus knows the father's pain and has come down from the mountain to deliver his boy when no one else could and that's what he did for you and me. He came down because no one else could help us. Do you believe it? That's why he left his glory. He did it for you. God so loved the world. Paul said he loved me and he gave himself up for me. Hey, leaving the glory of heaven was a pretty big step down. Being born in Bethlehem in a cave was a pretty big step down. He did it for me. And you? He says it's often thrown him 22 both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. I'm sure that this had to be a very tough caretaking situation. Can you imagine the people they needed around this boy just to deal with a day 
They never knew when the Spirit would convulse him and try to throw him into a fire or into a body of water. And, you know, scholars have pointed out that Satan's goal is always to disfigure and dehumanize people. And the Father says, if you can do anything, take pity. Take pity on us and help us. I think this Father is like, done. And Jesus said to him, 23, if you can, would you like to restate the question? <laughs> do you know who you're talking to, sir? If you can? Jesus says, all things are possible to him who believes. Trust me, is what Jesus is saying to the man. I just want to tell you that God does not respond from challenge. All right, just show me a miracle and I'll believe. Have you ever heard, you know, heard an atheist and a theist debating and the atheist says, if there's a God, may he strike me with lightning right now. And the Christian scholar goes. <laughs> it's only the grace of God that God doesn't answer that prayer. Although sometimes I wish he would. <laughs> Sorry. The pastor just say that? to a few of them. Anyway, sorry. God is so gracious. How many times did we raise our fist up at heaven? Like a little pipsqueak. If you're really real. <laughs> Somebody said, your arms are too short to box with God, brother. Come on. Be like an ant challenging you. you know. Come on. What would you do? <laughs> God doesn't at least most of the time <laughs> God doesn't respond to challenge he responds to contrition thus says the high and exalted one Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen, who lives forever whose name is holy I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite Contrition, literally in Hebrew, means to be crushed. You know what God responds to when a person is broken? He is near to the, what? Broken hearted. And Jesus is like, if you can? <laughs> uh-uh. All things are possible. And some of our friends in the Word Faith Camp say, you see? How many things are possible with God? All things. So, pray for a shiny black new Cadillac. In the name of Jesus. Because the Bible just said that all things are what? Possible. So if all things are possible, right? Then I'm going to pray for whatever I want. <laughs> right? So if I, if I tag the name of Jesus on a prayer, then I should get that thing I want, right? Wrong. Would you look ahead to Mark 14? All prayer is still under the sovereignty of God. Mark 14, look at verse 35. I know this bothers some people because we read some of these things and we say, well, then shouldn't anything I pray for happen? Well, let's read Mark 14, 35. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane went a little beyond them. The night before he dies, he's praying and he fell to the ground. Mark 14, 35 and began to pray that if it were possible, 
the hour might pass him by. Notice his prayer, Mark 14, 36. He was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, what does he say? Not what I will, but what you will. Look, all things are possible with God, but he's not going to do all things because it's his will, not my will. Now, some people say, oh, if you tag your prayer with your will be done, that's a cop-out. You're not really walking in faith. No, you are walking in faith. What you're actually saying is, I'm praying about this thing, Lord, but if this is not your will, please don't let it happen because I don't want to do anything outside of God's will. That's what a Christian believes. I don't want to do one thing that's outside his will. But what if I'm in a tough spot? What if God has me on a stretcher right now. What do I do then? Well, Jesus was on the stretcher in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he said, Father, all things are possible for you, and I do want this cup to be removed, but if the cup of suffering and the wrath of God was removed, you and I would be in hell. Aren't you glad God didn't answer that prayer? Aren't you glad the Father said, Son, this is the way? I know you don't want to go to the cross. I know you don't want to deal with the shame, but this is the way. You're going to pay for their sins. You see, that's when faith really kicks in. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's their Babylonian names. They were Hebrew males. They're, they're there. There's a huge 90-foot colossal statue that Nebuchadnezzar, for you VeggieTale fans. Anybody watch VeggieTales anymore? Oh, you, you still do. Okay. His name is Nebuchadnezzar, but in VeggieTales, he's called Nebuchadnezzar. Or as the little dude in the, some of the cartoons says, hey, boss. So, but, eh, never mind. So, anyway. So, he's, he's made this colossal golden statue to honor himself. In the plain of Dura, he's brought all these people groups, all his servants and slaves, all the bigwigs are out there. And he's got an orchestra. And he says, when the band plays, everybody's going to bow before my statue, okay? Okay. Strike the band. Well, everybody goes down when the music starts playing. This huge mass of humanity has bowed before Nebuchadnezzar's idol, Except three Hebrew, probably teenagers. And the little dude that serves Nebi says, Hey, boss, those three guys that are elevating in your cabinet, they don't bow to your statue. We've got a problem. So Nebuchadnezzar addresses them and says, Okay, boys, I don't know if we have a failure to communicate here. However, I like you guys, so let's try it again. When the band plays... Everybody's going to bow, including you three, okay? Band plays. Uh-uh. And they address, this is Daniel 3, 17 through 19. They say, Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, let it be known to you, we are not going to bow before your statue. We believe that God can deliver us and will deliver us from the furnace of fire that you have created here. But even if he doesn't, you want to talk about faith? We believe he can, we believe he will, but even if he doesn't, we are not bowing before your statue. And the Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar's face was altered. <laughs> what? 
And he said, heat the furnace up seven times hotter. As one writer put it, just in case the Hebrew God can only deliver people from normally heated furnaces. <laughs> and we know the story, right? They went into the fiery furnace and there was a fourth. And as it says in VeggieTales, when the little dude looks in there and he says, there's a fourth one in there, boss, and he's real shiny. <laughs> yep. Everything is possible for him who believes. Look, God does honor faith, but not presumptuous faith. We're not bossing God around here on the planet. We're supposed to be aligning ourselves with heaven's priorities, and heaven's priorities are not always mine. That's why I have to check myself in prayer. I do pray all the time, Lord, I believe everything is possible for you because you made all this stuff. But I also believe that I need to pray not my will but yours be done. I don't know what you're doing here. I don't know why this has been going on so long, but I have a feeling you're about to do something for your own purposes, and I can't see everything, and of the percentage of knowledge that exists in the universe, I'm not sure what percentage I actually possess in my 50 years on this planet, but I'm sure it's not a huge chunk of the pie. Amen? You ever asked an atheist who thinks they know everything, and I just showed up, I'm, I'm 16. <laughs> I've determined that, uh, you know, it's like, what? How much of the percentage of knowledge do you think you have? And the famous response from the boy's father. The boy's father cried out and began saying, verse 24, I do believe. Help my unbelief. You know what? Folks, as much as I am talking about faith this morning, I will tell you I've said that more times than I can count. And I want to give you some hope this morning. I'm a man of faith, but I've said that many times. I think this is a very hopeful Bible verse. I think it's a very honest Bible verse. And I think if we didn't say it and we were still thinking it, God would know anyway, so why not just say it? I would be careful how you address God, no doubt. But there's been times when I've encountered a situation and I said, Lord, I don't know what's going on. Another interview I heard this last week, woman, um, was it Timothy McVeigh that destroyed the, uh, what was the building again? The federal building. And uh, she lost two grandchildren in that. Uh, both both uh, little boys killed she said she didn't even know how to process things. They, she, as I recall the story, she said that one of her sons went running into the rubble and found uh, one of the grandsons that was dead, and then, uh, then they found the other one, or the other one was rushed to the hospital, but they had to put two little caskets into the ground. And she said, I was a Christian, but I didn't even know what to do anymore. She said, I didn't even know if there was a God. I didn't know what was going on. But... But at the end of that story, she says, and this was years later, of course, she says, uh, I've learned some things about the Lord. And I'm not telling you that was an easy time in my life, but I'm telling you that God has even redeemed that. And she said, now, you know, she has, uh, she told the numbers, like 13 grandchildren, and she said, and I got two more in heaven, and I'm going to see them soon. She said, it wasn't God that did that to us. Timothy McVeigh blew up that building you see, 
we're going to go through faith draining and challenges, challenging experiences, but Abraham grew strong in faith, Romans 4.20. There's some people that are weak in faith, Romans 14.1. We're supposed to encourage one another in our most holy faith. We're supposed to encourage one another to love and good deeds. And there's going to be seasons when my faith is high and yours is low, and seasons when yours is low and mine is high or whatever. And that's when we're going to need the church to stand with each other in faith. Sometimes it's just going to be a matter of saying, don't give up. In Luke 17, Jesus said, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times and says, I repent, forgive him. And in a famous response, Luke 17, 5, the apostle said to the Lord, Lord, increase our faith. <laughs> Luke 17, 5. What challenges your faith the most? Just think about it for a second. What challenges your faith the most? Things that are hard to figure out what God is doing. Maybe there's a broken relationship. Maybe it's what God asks of you. If your brother sins against you seven times and comes to you and says, I'm sorry, you're supposed to forgive him all seven. Not five of seven. <laughs> all seven times. And that's when I say, Lord, increase my faith. I believe that Bible verse, but, <laughs> amen, help <laughs> my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked 25, the unclean spirit, saying to him, you deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he's dead. He's dead. Can you imagine the crowd? Remember, imagine the scribes jumping on this one. You see? He's no healer. The boy's dead. Can you imagine being the dad? And Jesus took him by the hand, 27. And he raised him up. He lifted him. Lifted him up, New King James, and he got up and he arose. Can you imagine being the boy's dad? I knew it. I knew it was going to work. I Can you imagine the boy? He's probably burned from burn marks, disfigured. I don't know if his whole being was normalized again. I don't know, but I, again, I want video. Can you imagine? This is a type of the resurrection. The devil has come to kill, steal, and destroy. I came that they might have what? Life and have it to the full. And he comes and he pulls us up out of the cesspool of sin and the mess that we create and the, the lies and the tactics of the evil one. The demon was dashing him to the ground, throwing him into convulsions, but Jesus healed the boy, Luke 9, 42, and it says he gave him back to his father. And Jesus comes down from heaven, from the glory of heaven to this earth to bring dead people back to life and give them back to his father. Has he done that for you? done it for me i was dead in my trespasses and sins no true life i was walking around but i didn't have life and you know what he did he reached down a hand and he said i'm gonna bring life to you it's changed me forever almost now three decades of walking with him and i'm never the same you see jesus is enough and when you come into the house, we're almost done, and we're going to prepare our hearts for communion so if the ushers can get ready for that. 
When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately, and they said, why could we not cast it out? 29, Mark 9. He said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but what? But prayer. Alexander McLaren said, it is often our God-given duty to attempt tasks to which we are conspicuously inadequate in the confidence that he who gives them has laid on us to laid them on us to drive us to himself and there to find sufficiency. The best preparation of his servants for their work in the world is the discovery that their own stores are small. And Jesus in Matthew 17, 20 said, you couldn't do it because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, it's not about the size of your faith, it's even a little bit of faith. You shall say to this mountain, Move from here to there and it shall move and nothing shall be impossible for you. I don't know what mountains you're facing right now, but Jesus says this kind only comes out by prayer. The New King James adds prayer and fasting in some of the different manuscripts. And Luke 9.43 concludes that all the people were amazed at the majesty of God. And I want to just, I'm going to give you a preview of what's coming. So think about everything that's happened and just read these next few verses with very little commentary. But actually, the next three verses are Jesus reiterating that he's going to die. They were afraid to ask him. And then, as you keep reading on in the text, in Mark 9, they start arguing about which one of them... <laughs> well, I'm even embarrassed to say it. They, they come away from this whole scene... And they get in an argument about, <laughs> y'all know what's coming, right? Which one of them is the, wait, wait a minute. Do, don't you think that their argument should have been about how great Jesus is? Like, oh, he's this great. No, he's this great. <laughs> oh, but that wasn't what it was about. <laughs> so they're human like us. We come away from spiritual experiences sometimes and we're, we're in an argument about what? Oh, would you bow with me? God, teach us to learn from what we've experienced with you. We're coming to your table right now as a group of believers and with your head and heart bowed, if you're not a Christian, I don't know what else to say other than just to say run to Jesus Christ and get saved. He's there. He came down from the glory of heaven to die for you, to defeat death and rise for you and you must Repent and receive him now. Do it now. Say, Lord, I'm sorry for my sin, and I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Change me from the inside out. Lord, for all of us believers in this room, we know we're in process. We can see that every day, and we can see that by these Bible stories that are so real to real life. But Lord, we're just going to pray that as we come to your table and we ingest elements that speak of your death and resurrection and your blood shed on the cross and um, all you did for us. They point to a future, even a future second coming. Let us do whatever business we need to do with you, but I pray that as people meet you at the table right now, they would experience an increase in faith and grow stronger in their relationship with you. In Jesus' name I pray.